Brethren, as you find your seats, look in your Bibles at Revelation chapter 6. And let me just give you some kind of uh, introductory thoughts about Revelation 6 before we read it. Keep in mind, as we've been seeing in previous weeks, chapters 4 and 5 are foundational to chapter 6 and following. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw that John was permitted a vision by which he looked into heaven and he found God in Christ on his throne. And I said that this is really, in many ways, the thrust of the whole book. The whole book is intended to encourage persecuted Christians that God is, in fact, on his throne. And then last week, if you remember, in particular, we saw that the lion, who was a lamb, was given a scroll that he alone could open. And beginning with verse 1 of chapter 6, we're going to find that these seven seals, when loosed, largely speaking, are going to reveal to us what in fact was the contents of the scroll. And so we don't have to really speculate as to what was on the scroll because we're going to find beginning tonight that the scroll consisted of everything that will happen in time. And so I said last week that largely speaking, the scroll, because it was written on both the back and the front, contained all that God decreed from eternity past. And this includes everything. The salvation of God's people, the damnation of his enemies, all of the trials and the tribulations that they go through up until Jesus' second coming. Everything that does happen was already written in the scroll and is going to be revealed to us as the seven seals are loosed. And so... We mustn't think that the seven seals describe events that happen one after another. We're going to see that the seven seals reveal to us what's happening simultaneously right now. Every Christian right now, from Jesus' first to second coming, will experience the contents of the scroll. And they will endure everything that's found when the seven seals are loosed. Also, let me just say too, as we'll see in chapter 6, we find actually only the first six seals are loosed in chapter 6. And we're going to see that the sixth seal refers to Jesus' second coming and the judgment of the world. That's how chapter 6 ends. Chapter 7 is the necessary correlation to that. If uh, the end of chapter 6 talks about the destruction of God's enemies when Jesus comes back, then of necessity, chapter 7 describes the salvation of his elect when he comes back. So all of chapter 7 is a description of heaven, of what happens when Jesus comes back. At the end of chapter 6, with regards to his enemies, in chapter 7, with regards to his beloved people. And remember also, lastly, then we'll get started. If you remember, I said at the outset of our study of Revelation that it contains seven cycles. And those seven cycles describe 
the events that take place between Jesus' first and second coming. So chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the second of those seven cycles. And that's why it ends at the end of 6 and chapter 7 with Jesus' second coming. And then guess what happens when we start chapter 8? It starts it over again. It starts it over again with seven trumpets. Um, Because we're going to see when the seventh seal is loosed, seven trumpets appear. And uh, it starts the third of seven cycles. All right, well, with that uh, kind of introductory material behind us, let's read it. And then I want to just spend some time, because our time is going to move quickly, examining the six seals. And then I want to summarize our teaching, or summarize what I've taught you with regards to those seven seals with three exhortations, okay? Revelation 6, 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now let me just say, I forgot to say one last thing by way of introduction. The seven seals in chapter 6, the first four have horsemen. Okay, and each horse is a different color because it represents something peculiar. All four of those horses and all that they represent are happening simultaneously right now from Jesus' first to second comings. Everybody experiences the four horses, as we'll see in a moment. The fifth and the sixth seal, we'll get there in a minute, but nevertheless, just keep in mind, the first four are the famous four horsemen of the book of Revelation. And by the way, it's borrowed almost identically from the minor prophet Zechariah. All right, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, so you find a a white horse with regards to the first seal. Verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades, that is the grave, followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. See, now we're the fifth seal. We've seen the first four uh, concern four different colored horses. The fifth seal, souls under the altar who were martyred. And they cried with a loud voice, verse 10, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. And now we're going to find the sixth seal in verse 12. I looked, and he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth and hair, uh, uh, as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Now everything that's going to be that's going to uh, be described now from verse 13 to the end of the chapter describes the destruction of the world at Jesus' second coming. When the sky receded as a scroll, when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, I think all of us have to agree that this last verse or these last verses describe Jesus' second coming and the destruction of the wicked. By the way, again, chapter 7 describes the salvation of God's people and they're worshiping him in heaven for all eternity. So when he comes back, there's destruction, chapter 6, and salvation, chapter 7. And so, let me just remind you of the big picture very quickly. These seven seals describe events that take place on earth from Jesus first to his second coming. That's how it ends, with his second coming. Six seals are loosed. The first four provide four horsemen. The fifth describes saints in heaven anticipating judgment. And the sixth seal describes that judgment. All right, it's really... I mean, the big picture, brethren, is rather simple, isn't it? I think it's rather evident. It's going to be more difficult to discern what exactly is meant by the four horses. But uh, nevertheless, whatever is meant by the four horses is describing events that are taking place now. And then you have the fifth seal. Those saints in heaven martyred, anticipating Jesus' return. And then the sixth seal describes that return. All right? Well, let's go then to the first seal. Verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Brethren, I think this is the easiest of the four to interpret. The easiest of the four horsemen to understand. It's talking about God in Christ going forward in the chariot of his gospel, conquering and saving sinners. Now we're going to see in the next three horses, it's going to describe all manner of difficulty. Let me just kind of give you the gist of it. The next three horses, the red, the black, and the pale, all describe negative things. Persecution, tribulation, death, famine, all the things that happen now in the world. Along with that, according to the first horse, is the gospel going forward and saving sinners. Now, for example, let me just show you one reason why I suggest that. Look back briefly to Psalm 45. And notice verse 3. 
Psalm 45, verse 3. This, of course, is a psalm wherein the psalmist is describing the Messiah to come. He describes him. And he says of him in verse 2, You are fairer than the sons of men, etc. And then he says of him, It's a really a prayer. Verse 3 is the same prayer that Jesus told us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Remember Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. This is what the psalmist is doing in verse 3. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously, because of truth, humility, and righteousness, and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. All right, so everybody falls under Jesus in one of two ways, right? We're going to see that his enemies at the end of Revelation 6 fall beneath him at his second coming in judgment. But not everybody falls at Jesus' feet in judgment. Some are made willing in the day of his power. And that's what's being spoken about in Psalm 45. And it's what's represented in the first of the four horses. Uh, that is the white horse. All right. The second seal. Verse 4. Revelation 6, 4. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people would kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Remember what Jesus said, I've come not to bring what? Peace, but a... In other words, this passage is describing by the fiery red horse, largely speaking, is talking about persecution. In fact, this term, uh, I think it's in verse... At the end of verse 4... That he should kill or slay by the sword. That word slay is a more technical term that John uses almost always in the book of Revelation to martyrdom. In fact, it's applied, we'll see it in a moment, under the fifth seal uh, to those Christians who were what? Slain. Same word. Their, their blood was shed. They were martyred. So this logically follows the first, right? When the gospel changes the heart of a person, what happens? They're hated. They're persecuted. And in many cases, they're put to death. And that's here the imagery. And it's for this reason the red horse follows the white horse of necessity. Wherever there's a conversion, there's going to be opposition. And so we find that this persecution is described by a fiery red horse. Third seal, verse 5. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Now these scales aren't for judgment, we're going to see, but they're for weighing. And that's going to help us understand a little bit I think it's going to give us some indication as to what is meant by the black horse. Let me just say, too, the black horse and the pale horse are the most difficult to interpret and they're the most similar. Um, I want to suggest that because of verse 6, it's referring to poverty, oppression, injustice, and largely 
from a wicked and oppressing world. So while it's true that it describes poverty of all sorts, because all men experience poverty and uh, financial and social oppression, nevertheless, I think it's rather obvious or likely that it's a reference to that poverty that Christians endure because of oppression from the wicked rich. I mean, uh, brethren, uh, we do know that the United States is unique in its experiences. But usually Christians were poor and they were oppressed. Um, I mean, that's just, right, we find that all through the New Testament. But I'm saying that this is likely a reference to extreme poverty and and oppression because of verse 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now a denarius, as you might know, is largely the equivalent of a day's wages. So it's talking about how things are very expensive. Because the wheat and the barley measures there are good enough, are, are sufficient for one man one day. In other words, people are going to be uh, impoverished. And they're going to starve. There's famine. There's hardship. And I think that refers to all mankind because all man, uh, all men, generally speaking, experience it. But I think it's a peculiar reference to the righteous who are oppressed and mistreated due to their religious beliefs. That's not the case in America, thankfully. But it might be and likely will be one day. So to summarize very simply, the white horse, the gospel... Victorious, The red horse, persecution. Black horse, financial, social, oppression, extreme poverty. Famine and similar related things. Um, now the fourth horse is pale. And that's in verse 8. So I looked and behold a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades, Hades here means grave. And, and the grave, death and the grave, followed with him. And power was given to them, death and the grave, over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, hunger, death, and by the beasts of the earth. And I submit to you that here by pale horse is meant death and all related, all related physical suffering, hardship, experienced by all people, including the righteous. Brother, we share the earth with the wicked. And what befalls us befalls them in many ways, right? That's what the whole book of, uh, well, several books of our Bible speak about that. Ecclesiastes especially. What is one of the main points of Ecclesiastes? It doesn't make sense. Everybody experiences the same things. You know why? Because these four horses run simultaneous to one another, in the same time, and everybody experiences all the things that they represent. There's sinners being saved, and then those sinners being mistreated, and then there's all of the poverty. And again, just stop and think, brethren, for a second. I, I want to say that, largely speaking, these four horses refer to the righteous. I want to say, though, that obviously we all experience death, poverty, oppression, or whatever. But just stop and think of the progression. 
You become a Christian, horse, uh, the white horse. You suffer, red horse. Your goods are usually taken from you, and you're kicked out of, if you're a Jew, out of the Jewish society. If you're Gentile, you're marginalized. Black horse. And then with that comes what? All manner of suffering and then death. Pale horse. I think that's what he's saying. Because that's exactly what they're undergoing, brethren. Remember, he's writing to the seven churches, representative of all churches of all time. Now, I do think, though, it's right, and I'm going to even show you here in a moment, necessary, to widen those um, horses to include all people. Obviously, not all people are conquered for the gospel, and only Christians um, endure persecution. And that's why I think the first two have to be limited to those who are Christian, and that's why I think in a unique way, the third and the fourth horse are. All right? Now let's quickly then go to the last two seals, and then we'll back up. The fifth seal, verse 9. Then he, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Again, the word slain is the same one we saw earlier in association with the red horse. Same word. And notice why they were slain. For the word of God. That is, they believed the word, they preached the word, and they, cl- and they clung to the one who that word teaches us about. And I think that's what it means by for the testimony which they held. They held tightly, brethren, to Christ, even though it brought upon them all manner of tribulation and hardship, i.e., the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse. They were killed because they bore witness to the truth of God's word. They were hated. And they were killed. Now I want to say though, let us be clear, that while it's speaking specifically of those who were killed, by the way, chapter 20 is going to describe these same people as those beheaded, it's really a a broader reference to all Christians who die in Christ. Because not every Christian was martyred. Not every Christian was slain. But slain there means persecution. And the fullest expression of it is actual physical death. Because they all experienced the first horse, the white one. They experienced the second one, the red one. And that brought upon them all manner of troubles. The black and pale ones. Now, notice verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In other words, because they've been made perfectly holy, they have perfectly holy desires, or they desire that God's name would be avenged in judging their wicked enemies who, because they hate God, had put them to death. So this isn't some personal controversy. They're not saying, oh God, how, how much longer do you come back to deal with that neighbor of mine that never returned my lawnmower? No, this is talking about those who have aligned themselves against God's people as his enemies because they hated God himself. And thus they're perfectly holy, brethren. 
And a perfectly holy soul is going to want what Jesus wants. And that is to judge and avenge his enemies and his people. All right, notice the sixth seal, verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. All the rest is just imagery you find all through our Bibles that describe the second coming and the judgment of the wicked. And again, just think of the progression, brethren. It all fits together. They become Christians. They're hated and and persecuted. They're oppressed. They suffer. Then they go to heaven, right? What do they do in heaven? They're worshiping, chapters 4 and 5. But they're also crying out, how long, O God? And then in answer to those prayers, Jesus comes back. That's the sixth seal. And he judges all men, the kings, the great men, the rich men. By the way, let me just say this too. If you notice, verse 15 the kings of the earth, the great men, and the rich men, the mighty men, the commanders. And then it goes on to talk about all the others. But it's stressing, I think, in part, those rich, wicked rich who were oppressing them, brethren. Those who were associated with the black horse. And he comes back and he judges them, verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Now watch. That's a question that sets up the next chapter. Because the only ones able to stand are those who are in Christ, as he'll show us in chapter 7. So I don't think it's necessarily a rhetorical question. I mean, it is in one sense. None of the wicked can stand, right? None of the wicked can stand. But there are those who will stand for the sake of another, as we'll see in chapter 7. So chapter 7 can be understood either as something of an aside between the 7th and 8th seals. Because remember the 8th seal doesn't come until chapter 8 and and starts that cycle over again. Or else it's a continuation of the 6th seal. Chapter 7 I'm talking about. Either way, I, I don't know. And both fit. All right, now let me uh, spend a few minutes then suggesting some uh, obvious exhortations in light of what we've just seen. Now, before I go any further, let me just ask you this question. You don't have to answer it out loud. Doesn't, doesn't everything I say, generally speaking, make sense from this text? Brethren, the book of Revelation is far easier to understand than we think. The book of Revelation is intended to be practical and encouraging to persecuted and hated Christians. Brethren, this chapter is full. Now chapter 7 is really going to be an encouragement. We have to wait till next week. But this passage, this chapter, brings with it great encouragement. Alright? But I want to start first of all with this exhortation. Let us be realistic. Brother, this chapter, if it's right, if I've interpreted it right, and I suggest I have, then it blows out of the water this whole have your best life now mindset. Because all four horses happen right now, and all Christians endure all that those horses represent. 
The red one, persecution. The black one, poverty and oppression. And the pale one, all manner of suffering and death. Brethren, here it is. It's not a news flash. Christians endure alongside their unsaved friends all manner, and I want to say in some sense, equally along with their unsaved family members and friends, all of the hardships of this life. Now, let me qualify. They, while they equally under, undergo all of the hardships of this life, they don't undergo all of the hardships of this life equally, or for the same reason, right? Uh, all of these judgments come upon the wicked as a judgment. All of these hardships come upon the wicked as a judgment. They come upon us, why? As a loving chastisement. All right, so ask yourself this question. Is it true that Christians endure all of the hardships of this life, generally speaking, equally alongside their unsaved family members and friends? If so, brethren, then let us have a realistic expectation of this life. Let me apply it this way. Christians die of cancer just as much as non-Christians. And I defy you to prove it otherwise. Christians have miscarriages as much as non. Christians die in accidents as much as non. Now obviously they're spared from certain things because they don't live certain ways. Um, AIDS, for example. Christians are going to get AIDS much less. But generally speaking, they undergo all of the difficulties equally so, though very differently, than the unsaved. Brethren, this chapter necessitates us to have a realistic view of life. To be, what's the saying? To be forewarned is to be forearmed. I think this is what this chapter is intending to say. You alongside every other Christian from the beginning of the world, as well as every other Christian who will be saved to the end of it, will walk together through this world and will experience all that the four horsemen represent. Now, I have to take a, a break, a digression. Because I want to show you that in Jesus' final public discourse, that's the Olivet Discourse, right? That's Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Same discourse. Jesus does the exact same thing that John does here. He sets out before his disciples in that discourse a realistic approach to life. All right, now let me show it to you. In fact, you find all four horses in those sermons very, very, rather easily. Okay, let me just give you a sample uh, in Mark's uh, version of the discourse. Mark 13. Uh, let me just try to find them in the order that we find them, the, the four horses in the order that we find them in Revelation. All right, do you remember the order? Children, might, you, you might can remember those. Remember the order? Let me see if I can. Hope I can. The, wow, thank you. Mike, Mike's helping me out there. Let me try to do it myself and then I'll look to you. But just don't let anybody see you. Kind of. White horse, red horse, black horse, pale horse. That word pale, by the way, one man said it's really a, that's a poor translation. It, it really speaks of the color of a dying and rotten 
rotting corpse. It's kind of a grotesque way to put it, but it represents all that that pale horse represents. All right. So those four horses. Look first at the white horse. Mark 13.10. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. The white horse has to go forward, brethren. The white horse will go forward. Look at verse 13. The red horse. Well, really, it starts at verse 11. They will arrest you, deliver you up. Uh, look at the end of verse 12. You're going to be put to death. And, and death there is the death of persecution. Right? Because the death of the pale horse is really more associated with, with disease and suffering, more natural. Where the death of the red horse is slain. It, it's, it's, it's brutal. So you're put to death. And then verse 13 is the red horse. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So we see the white horse, the red horse. Um, look back over to verse 8 where you have a blending of the black and the pale. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's the whole notion of wars and, and, and that, and sufferings associated with it, death, earthquakes in various places, famine. Famine, technically I put up under the uh, black, because uh, that goes with, uh, with uh, poverty and all that, but it's actually mentioned under the pale. So... It, 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 you don't have to be uh, overly uh, dogmatic here. Troubles that has to do with uh, related troubles with famine and, uh, and, and poverty and hunger. And these are the beginnings of sorrow. In other words, brethren, the point being, Jesus is doing the same thing in this discourse as we find in, in Revelation 6. He's forewarning his beloved people. And why? Well, look at Mark 13, 23 in part. But take heed. See, I have told you all these things beforehand. He wants them to be ready for what's coming. Now, some of you might remember when we expounded this sermon in our Sunday school class recently, we saw that it really speaks of two events, doesn't it? The immediate one, the destruction of Jerusalem, which was a shadow of the second one, which was the destruction of the world. So he is speaking to his disciples and he's warning them about all that's going to happen here in their lifetime in a few, in a few decades. But brethren, that was just a shadow of what will happen in the end day. And that's what John is talking about, the end of chapter 6 and the sixth seal, the judgment of the world. But the point being is this. Jesus tells us here, and he tells us there in Revelation 6, that we might take heed. That's the point, isn't it? You know what he add, what's added there in Luke's rendition? He says basically right, here, right, right at this point where Jesus says that, I've told you this that you might know. Luke adds something that Jesus said to them. Luke 21, 18. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. Does that mean that Christians don't go bald? Possible. No, Christians go just as bald as non-Christians. In some cases more. 
but he means nothing will fall from your head apart from my sovereign loving will. Brother, go back to this whole point. Who's loosening the scroll and opening the seals? All of this comes from Jesus. That's the point. Yes, he uses wicked people. He uses wicked things. But nevertheless, he sits as sovereign over them all. There's a sense even we could say it might be uh, pushing it that Jesus really is the horseman on all the horses. That's actually what, what Dr. Beakey said. And uh, it's just gra- a graphic way to say that he's very involved in this. That's the point. Listen to what he did say, Beaky. How comforting it is to know that the powers and principles that gallop through human history, the powers and principles that gallop, he's thinking of the four horses, through human history, are not wild horses. They're not wild horses, but that they are directed by the Savior. These aren't wild horses just running haphazardly. All these things come from the throne, the one who sits on the throne. Remember what Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. He's went back to sit at the right hand of his father and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And that includes all that happens in heaven and on earth. Second exhortation. The first was, let us be realistic. Secondly, let us be hopeful. By this I mean with suffering and hardship, the kingdom will advance. Brethren, here's the point. There's four horses. The latter three are difficult. They bring hardship. But always alongside them will be the white horse to the end of the age. Now, the white horse means sinners are going to be saved, right? But it also means saints will be kept. Sinners will be saved and saints will be kept. Let me just um, remind some of you quickly of two end time views. Okay? Two end time views. You know, sometimes you hear about um, all millennial, all millennialism, post millennialism, and pre millennialism. All right? So, all post and pre. And it has to do with that, that, that uh, verse in, in Revelation 20, we'll get to, where it talks about a thousand years. Millennial is a thousand years, right? And so these three views, well, are, are, are views that relate to, to that thousand years. Pre means Jesus comes back and he establishes on earth a literal thousand years. Okay, we don't believe that. Let's throw that one out. The second one, is all mill. And that all means no, so it doesn't believe there's a literal thousand years. That's all it means. And it means that we're now in the thousand years, and the thousand years is the time frame between Jesus' first and second comings, and a time where there's always going to be four horses. That's what we are, at least that's what I am. Now the other view is very similar to it. In fact, they're cousins, and that's called post-mill. And I just stop and think, post-mill, after mill. So this view says that there's going to be a time prior to Jesus' second coming when the gospel goes forward in such a way that the world is radically altered for the good. Okay, that's a kind of a simple way to put it 
may not even be a fair way to put it, but let's just go there, okay? <clears throat> so that's the post-mail view. Now, which of those two are more accurate, the post or the all? Let me suggest to you that they really both are correct. They just look at things a little differently. The all-mail is very pessimistic, okay? Uh, things are just going to get worse and worse, and Jesus is going to come back. And there's verses that say that in the Bible. And yet, there's other verses in the Bible that say that the kingdom will, go, will, will advance and Jesus will build his, his church. Which is it, brethren? Well, this chapter tells us that the white and the other three horses exist simultaneously. So they're both true in that sense. Now, in the, in the more narrow sense, post-millism isn't true. But it's true in this sense that the kingdom... So, in other words, we can look at... We can look at the future optimistically, but realistically. You put that together, you have a very accurate all-male view of the end times. So we can say, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get bad. It's going to get bad. And yet, in one sense, it's going to get better. Because the kingdom of God is going to go forward, and Jesus is going to build his kingdom, and the gates of hell shall not, shall not keep him from it. And why should this bring us hope, brother? Why should it bring us hope that in the midst of a world that's going to increasingly decay, why should it bring us hope that the white horse will go forth? Well, let me suggest a couple of reasons. One, nothing can hinder the success of the gospel. I take from my text that one I, I turn you to in Psalm 45. He will ride forth prosperously. Brother, Jesus is going to prosper. Or another way of putting it, as I've said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. That's why we are optimistic. Yes, we're all mill. We're pessimistic, big time, in many ways. But we have a real mixture of of optimism because nothing can keep the gospel from advancing. Secondly, this another reason why this should make us hopeful, no enemy can stand before God's gospel. And by that I mean he will conquer. I mean, look at the language of uh, the first seal and the white horse. He, the, the white horse is going forward conquering that means he's taking hard-hearted rebels. Because to conquer means to defeat, to overcome. Who's he's defeating? Who's he, who is he overcoming, brethren? His enemies. That means you and me by nature. So you think of your neighbor, your hard-hearted, wicked, foolish, ignorant, God-hating, church-persecuting neighbor. And you say, that man's beyond hope. No, he's not. Because there's one who sits on the white horse who conquers. Remember what Paul said? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, Jews and Greeks. 
And then a final exhortation would be this. Not only let us be realistic, hopeful, but let us be warned, brethren. There is coming, in fact, there is coming, in fact, the opening or the loosening of the sixth seal. And with the opening of the sixth seal will come the righteously angered Lamb who will come back to earth and judge his enemies and avenge his friends. One of the lectures this, I think it was yesterday at the basics conference in Parkside was by an Englishman who is an evangelist in his church and he preached on the topic or the theme of hell. And he tried to encourage the attenders of this conference to preach the doctrine of hell to their people. Friends, this chapter describes the doctrine of hell, doesn't it? At the end of chapter 6. For the great day of his wrath has come. And my friend, who is able to stand in the day of the, of the Lamb's wrath but those who are in Christ? As we'll see them described so beautifully in chapter 7. God willing next week. Well, let's stand and pray and then we'll come to our time or uh, sing our second hymn and then we'll come to our time of prayer. Mike, do you have a hymn selected? 221. 221.